0: Good morning, beloved. We return to our Sunday school class, the least of these. I'm Mike Sherritt. Thank you for joining us. This is Sunday morning, November 3rd. We are working through a handout, and if you would like an electronic copy of this, it's very easy for me to send it to you on your computer. Just let me know. Uh, Otherwise, the hard copies are in the foyer there. The, The handout is The Divine Structure of Relationships, We started working on this last week. We're going to pick up on page 5, but I want to review the main principle that we're exploring. So look at the first page. The question, how does Christ structure our relationship with himself and with others, will be answered after I pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious children, these dear men and women, into whose hearts you have put life in Christ And a desire to know you, to know your word, to live in a way that brings glory to you. Thank you. They are trophies of your grace. It is such a privilege to gather on a beautiful morning in this country, freely gather without fear for our lives, and to seek you. Would you satisfy the desire of our hearts to know you, to understand your word, to be filled with the riches of Christ? and our desire to live in peace with one another. Use the study to that end. For Christ's glory's sake. Amen. How does the Lord structure our relationship with himself and others in essentially the same way, according to the principle of solidarity? That's a big fancy word for what's true of one is true of the other. When you're one with a person, what's true of that person is true of you. So with respect to your identity as a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus says to you, as I, so you. As I am, so you are. That's the, one of the benefits of union with Christ. What's true of Christ is true of us. And, therefore, what's true of those who are also in Christ, same thing that's true of you is true of them, and God calls us to treat them as he's As uh, as he has treated us, so we're uh, we're teasing out the implications of those principles. Okay, so now we're on page five, and we're at the second one. We are reconciled to one another in our solidarity with Christ. We're showing what are the implications of being in solidarity with Jesus Christ. Somebody read for us Galatians 3:28. Thank you, Pat. So what do you call these categories? Are they real categories? Yes. Yes, we are really males and there are females and there are people of different economic station and there are people with different ethnicities and religious convictions, etc. Okay. And what is Paul saying about those categories if you take people from those different categories and they belong to Jesus? What is he saying about that?: They're all one. What does oneness mean? All those lines Equal are erased. What's that?: All those lines are erased. Those lines are erased, and those lines read between what Frank is saying. These are the bases for which human beings choose to make distinctions for feeling superior to another person or treating them differently. right? That's what human beings do. They use these kinds of distinctions to assign value or dignity to a person and make themselves greater than another. Those distinctions are gone because in Jesus Christ, you have as much value as I have. You have as much dignity as I have. All our dignity is shared. It's what? Where is it found? In Christ. That's why there's a oneness here. So we have a oneness of status. We are all saints. We are all saints. That's how Halloween began. We are all saints. It's evolved to something different now. Now, Paul in Ephesians 2 is going to tease this out in a little bit more detail. Somebody read Ephesians 2, 13 through 16 for us. thereby killing the hostility. Thank you, Frank. So he's teasing out the implications that now in Christ, and he's speaking to the church in Ephesus, and specifically, who does he have in mind when he says, you who were once far off? Who does he have in mind? Gentiles. Gentiles. They were far off from the commonwealth of Israel. They were far off from the promises of God. They lived without proximity, as it were to what God was doing on earth through his people Israel, you who were far off. And he has a very interesting play on the concept of hostility and peace. The basic paradigm here is he's acknowledging what human beings have created through sin, and that is there's hostility between Jew and Gentile. Go back in time far enough, and if you were in a Jewish community in the Old Testament, what should your attitude be towards your Gentile neighbors? I exist to bless you. That's the biblical mandate. The biblical mandate is, I am so privileged to be called by God to be in this unique community where the one true God is our God, I'm called to bless you and invite you into the relationship. Abraham was to be a blessing to the nations and all of the seed. Now, they failed in that miserably. We're not going to sit in judgment on them, are we? Because we're not, are we doing a great job making Christ known in the community? (laughs) Okay, we're going to uh, withhold our judgment. But by the time of the New Testament, there's a big hostility between these two ethnic, races as it were, Jew and Gentile. Paul's just acknowledging the fact, okay? What do these two, if we're all going to get along with each other what is necessary, we need peace. But what, And then where does he go with that? He says in verse 16 that God might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's two kinds of hostility Paul has in mind. First, he's acknowledging this earthly man-made hostility, but what's the worst hostility in play? It's the hostility God has towards us because we are lawbreakers. And that hostility has been put away where? According to the verse. On the cross. Jesus Christ took the hostility that the law created by keeping the law in our place and bearing the penalty for the law. Jesus Christ stepped in and took the hostility God has for us. So if you belong to Jesus, that hostility is gone. And this distinction, by definition, has to disappear. He's made peace with us through the cross of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. And therefore, if I, a believing Jew, and now am at peace with God through Christ, you, a believing Gentile, are at peace with God through Christ, we have to be at peace with each other. We have to. Meaning we are in reality and we're called to live out what is true in reality. Don't you love his logic? Any other comments to make about this verse? Notice the emphasis on the flesh of Jesus. The flesh of Jesus. You were reconciled to God through the flesh of Jesus. Why? What was nailed into his flesh, according to Paul here, Abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Christ fulfilled the law in your place. We're going to see that uh, from Romans 7 in a little bit. In the flesh of Jesus. And therefore, the ways that we use to make distinctions between human beings based on flesh, they have to disappear. Flesh is going to become very important in our discussion this morning. Ephesians 3.6, who would read that? just uh, almost a recapitulation of this in, in less terms. Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, so he probably has in mind what portion of the Ephesian church when he writes this. The Jewish portion. All right, guys, I want to remind you and when when, the new, when Paul uses the word mysterion, mystery, he, he doesn't mean some sort of Gnostic thing that you discover. He means something God put in the Old Testament that isn't exactly clear, but by virtue of progressive revelation, a mystery is something God intended to do that now in the light of the New Testament is clear. And there's actually two mysteries in the New Testament: Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's going to dwell in you. We have indications of that through the prophets, Ezekiel, right? And this mystery: God is going to include into His people the Gentiles. And we could do our Bible study and show that completely convincingly. God's intention is always to put the Gentiles into His people, Israel. So that's what He's saying. That that mystery. Here's the mystery. Uh, the Gentiles, they are your fellow heirs, members of the same body. What body? The body of Christ the Church, but what also body? The flesh of Jesus. It's in the flesh of Jesus that this reconciling takes place. And when you hear the flesh of Jesus, and you know yourself to be condemned by the law of God, what is that supposed to do to your heart? You look at the flesh of Jesus. What's it do to your heart? It softens it. It humbles you. I did that to God the Son. I did that. I scorned. I mocked. I spit in his face. I plucked his beard. I whipped his back. I put the crown of thorns on him. I did that. I nailed the, the, uh, the spears into his flesh. I did that. So there can be no sense of feeling superior as a human being or as a, in a socioeconomic or racial uh, context, of feeling superior to other people in light of that. Pat? How do we believe in our tools in that? Because we have our eyes that we see, we don't see a person's heart. So we give the people the benefit of the doubt. Yes. They are believers within the church. Yes. And our... Yes. Yeah. Somebody names the name of Christ, we give them the benefit of the doubt. If they begin acting contrary, what should we do to what should be obvious? What should we do? Talk with them. I'm really struggling with this, brother. Uh, You say you believe this about Jesus, but this belief you're practicing over here seems to betray that. Help me understand. Help me understand. Is that what you're saying, Pat? Good. So look at my comment here. We enjoy ontological, that means being, from the the noun ontology, which has to do with being. We enjoy ontological unity and equality of status with believers of any stripe or variety, while functional differences remain. Marty remains a man, Kayleen remains a woman. You might remain in the upper middle class economically, I might remain in the lower. These differences remain. We're going to see that in, in, in glory, the nations are coming into the presence of God. There's a variety of expressions of culture in God's economy. Those differences remain. Missionaries don't set out from America to make other people white Western Americans, do they? They shouldn't. <laughs> That's a slightly different, well, it's an important distinction. But okay, So these differences remain. Gifts, gender, roles, personal history, station in life resources, the differences ultimately should bear fruit for the common good. So why do, why am I different? Why am I male? Why do I have these gifts? Why do I have different resources than other people? I think 1 Corinthians twelve hints at an answer. To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We are unite I'm going to move on unless you want to say anything more about it. We're united in our need of the cost of our salvation, the suffering and death of Jesus. So, for example, Paul writes 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. Who's got it? Nice and loud. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and the end of Paul thinks back on his visit with the Corinthians when he reduces it down to the one and most important thing. What is it? Christ crucified. Galatians 6.14. Somebody read for us. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. So what unites us? We all need the same cross to save us. There's no one saved apart from the cross. We're united in relishing the gain of our salvation, the riches of the risen Christ. We're all equally rich in Christ spiritually, aren't we? Because we're in union with Christ in his resurrection. So to that point, who would read Ephesians 3.8? To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. Thank you. So, who among us needs strengthening of our spirits by the power of the Holy Spirit? Who among us needs that? Everyone. Why? Because we're all equally, desperately needy. The only thing all of us ever can bring to God of ourselves is our need. Our need. That's all we bring to God. And He lavishes indiscriminately need and grace and His Spirit. On me, human beings. He is not a discriminator. He's not a respecter of persons. Thank God. Thank God for all of us. 2 Thessalonians 2.14. Again, we're relishing the gain of our salvation the riches of Christ. Who would read that for us? Thank you, Redu. So who's going to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? Who? Any who have, according to the verse, answered the call of the gospel. There's no discriminating in that. It's human beings hearing the call of the gospel. All right. Now, yes, Joe? Yeah. Uh, the world crucified to me. So, Who wants to take a stab at it? I'll I'll take a stab at it. Anybody want to take a stab at it? Joe wants to go back to Galatians 6.14, which is under, we're all united in our need of the cost of salvation, uh, which says, Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Like worldly passions. Like, yeah. Right. yeah. Backing up, say to chapter five, where he talks about the war within us between the flesh and the spirit. Is that what you're thinking? Sure. He's still, he's still echoing that battle. Well, it's possible to read it that way. So, in what way has Paul been, has the world been crucified to him? In what way is that? Would we say, uh, uh, Rock? You no longer cares about the value system of the world, the things that are in the, the world don't matter to him anymore. Okay. He's got his eyes on another standard. Okay. Yeah. The cr- the cross ultimately devalues anything else, right? It's, it's um, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of born died, the you know, poor content of the long pride, you know, I sacrifice everything to Christ. The, the world's values don't hold a sway on me. Only the cross does. Okay. Okay. Alright. Just take it from what Romans uh two, the last two verses. Circumcised means nothing now but a new heart. Okay. Any other takers on this? James? Yeah, Paul says he counts it all is done. Philippians three? Yeah. Yeah, so that's well, good. And what does he count done? Any accomplishments, yeah. any worldly praise, any uh, thing that the world is, I think, brought the same the value. It doesn't compare at all to, to Christ. So, you know, his 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 Jewish heritage is of little value compared to uh, to the cross as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a bunch of things. His righteousness, his heritage. 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 Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I also wonder if, if Paul is saying, um, the world is hostile towards me. I belong to Jesus. I'm going to experience the hostility. And did he? He sure did. So there's a kind of crucifixion believers experience in solidarity with Jesus by the way the world treats us. Jesus. Somebody famous said, they're going to, if they hated me, they'll hate you. There's a kind of crucifixion there. So I wonder if that's what he has in view. Yeah, I was wondering if he was just put the word dead in there. Once dead, he had no like the world doesn't have sway over me. But I have no sway over it. And the does not accept me. Good. Good. And that's sort of in line with some of the comments that have been made. I don't want to go with its value systems, et Yeah, I will say I just handed that up. Good. Good. So should we go to the top of six? Okay, solidarity in Christ's body. And incidentally, first of all, thank you for joining the class. There's a method to my madness. I'm trying to lay a a foundation of many, many, many layers, working towards some harder application in the church with respect to reconciling relationships. And what is our obligation to those that are different than us, to the poor, etc. So I'm just, I'm painstakingly laying a lot of layers of foundation. But there's a method to my madness. So bear with me. Our solidarity in Christ's body. First, our solidarity with Jesus' flesh. Ephesians 5.29. Who would read that? For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his mother, his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and that two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that refers to Christ and the church. Thank you, Dory. What's the profound mystery, y'all? The, the, this refers to what in, in, in Paul's writing here? It refers to what he just wrote in 31, right? It refers to the Genesis 2 marriage mandate, that you leave and cleave. That's a mystery. No, uh, that mystery, that, that fact is going to point to what? It wasn't in view in the garden per se, and Paul's saying, now what what does that fact? The way marriage is done, two people become one flesh. What is it? What does it show? Christ is one with the church. Christ is one with the church. Now there's two senses in which who will become one flesh. The obvious one we most usually think of is physically. And so God constrains the physical act of reproduction to that one relationship. Okay, That's part of that. But when Paul says the two become one flesh, it's also bigger than that. It's one decision-making unit. One person. Why do I need to get along with my wife? We're one flesh. Why do we need to make joint decisions? We're one flesh. We're one person. She's still Janice. I'm still Mike, but we're one person. The same is true when it comes to the church. So that when Paul says, uh, he starts in verse 29, he says, no one hated his own flesh. He said, okay, just think about life, guys. Do you take good care of your body as a rule? Most people do. Most people, people that hurt themselves have problems, right? Right? As a rule, we take good care of our bodies. We, there's a, self, a self-surviving, self-protective thing built into us as human beings. For good reason. For good reason. So he, Paul says, start there with that simple principle. You nourish it, you cherish it. As Christ does the church. Okay, well, that makes sense. The church, who's that? That's all of us. So in the same sort of intensity, you and I care for ourselves. Jesus does that for his church, but so much better and so much more perfectly. Because I don't always eat right. I don't always get the exercise I should. I don't always do sleep, what do they call it, sleep hygiene. You know, don't drink coffee after 2 p.m. and don't take a nap. I don't always do sleep hygiene. Jesus cares for his church how? Perfectly. And then he goes on. Just uh, because we are members of his what? What? Why did he change the word to body and not just leave a church? Because he's talking about the flesh of Jesus. The bodily flesh of Jesus. Just like the two will become one bodily flesh to the act of procreation of marriage, and yet the two will become one person, one decision-making unit. We are members of Christ's body, his church, and we are united to Jesus' flesh. That's the mystery. We're united to Jesus' flesh. And we're going to unpack that as we go through this. So, for example, Romans 7.4. Somebody read that for us. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to one another. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Thanks, Rob. So here you are. Are you born under the law? If you're a human being, you're born in solidarity with Adam. What did Adam owe God in order to live together? Forever. He owed God perfect obedience. We call that the covenant of works. Covenant of works. We owe God, by virtue of being human, we owe God total obedience. We're all born under the law. Okay? Okay. What does Paul say? He says, you've died to the law through the body of Christ. Does body of Christ mean church here? No, it means the flesh of Jesus. you died to the law through the flesh of Jesus. How did that happen? The flesh of Jesus on the cross put an end to the law. All the obedience that's required by the law, Jesus gave, active and passive. What do we mean by the passive obedience of Christ? His death, Him staying on the cross in obedience to His Father. All that obedience, Jesus rendered, and in that act of dying for you, He took all the requirements of the law and He nailed them into the cross. So they can never accuse you. Where, Where are the requirements of the law? Where are the requirements of the law? In the flesh of Jesus, the law can never rise up as bad as you've been and say, Guilty, condemned. You're not going to heaven because it can, all condemned Jesus in the flesh. He became bearing your sin. He bore the penalty for all that sin. But the point is, it is in the flesh of Jesus. And so, what is the result of this? He says in this verse, "You." What's the verse say? No, no, right before that. Am I looking at it right? You belong to one another. You belong to one another. I mean, the Christian's glorious to say, I belong to Christ. What happened to Christ happened to me. His death on the cross was His death to the law. It's my death to the law. His resurrection from the grave is my resurrection from the grave. It's all in union with Jesus Christ. And if it happened to you, and it happened to me, and it happened to you, and it happened to Him, we belong to each other. We have to because we're in solidarity with the flesh of Jesus. Where would we be without the flesh of Jesus? That's why we need an incarnation, beloved. That's why we need an incarnation. Isn't that? It's just stunning. Sorry. saying there's when you think about your enemies, you have there are people who have flesh and blood who sure look like your enemies. The ultimate enemy behind them is Satan. So so I would imagine those who have been persecuted for the faith, say in China right now, why do they have grace for their tormentors? Corey Ten Boom. My my son was just reading the hiding place and he said, Dad, when they were in the in the um, the uh, the gulag or whatever it was her sister Said to Corey, some of you might know this story better than me, I haven't read the book, Luke was telling me this, and he's going to be in worship today, so go say hi to him if you want to meet my middle son. Um, he said, his sister said, we need, we need to pray for these people. And Corey didn't quite understand what she meant, and she said, they're going to need Christ once the war's over. We need to pray for our tormentors. So the only way you can say that Is to see behind the heinous acts of people who have flesh and blood the devil. That's who our warfare is with, the devil. People do stupid things. I do stupid things. But ultimately, our conflict is not with people, it's with the devil and his minions. Okay. You die to the law through the body of Christ, the flesh of Jesus, that you may belong to one another. There's only one thing that can reconcile us to each other. What is it? The flesh of Jesus it's true right people just can't get along (laughs) to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God here's sexual language I think he's echoing the two will become one flesh one of the reasons Adam and Eve become one flesh is so they can have kids they can bear fruit they can fill the earth and multiply now you've been raised from the dead with Jesus so that you can do what when you were under the law what was the nature of your fruit it all came from where your sinful nature. And that's not the kind of fruit that pleases God. It's good for you, is good for the marriage, or is good for the church, or good for the world. Now that we've been raised up with Jesus Christ in the, in the resurrected Jesus, we are bearing fruit for God by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus is at work in you and me. I often think, man, we do not access the amount of power we have in this universe. And it's like we have our hand right next to the atomic bomb. Spiritual atomic bond. We, we just, I, I don't, but it's there. Okay, anything more to say about this? Our solidarity with Jesus' flesh? How about Jesus' solidarity with our flesh? It's going to cut both ways. 1 Corinthians six, 15, The basis for sexual ethics. Who would read it? This is why Christianity is not Gnosticism. Your body counts. Your body, your physical body, was redeemed by what? A physical body. God has a body. His name is Jesus. He's in a body right now somewhere in this universe. Maybe it's a different dimension. I don't know. We were reconciled to God through the body of Christ. So when when he starts out and he says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ, what body is he talking about? Your physical body belongs to Jesus. You're joined to him, again, in solidarity with him on the cross. And there's also a spiritual union. And so he reasons then that to use your body to be joined by something that doesn't belong to you, that's a complete aberration. It's undoing the fact that our bodies are in union with Jesus. glorify God in your body. There's a lot more we can say about it. We need to move on. Acts 9-4. Again, in what way is Jesus in solidarity with our flesh? Acts 9-4 says, He fell onto the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting Thank you, Pat. So somebody translate it for us. Saul was persecuting the church? And that was persecuting Jesus because Jesus is in solidarity with the flesh of the people of God. You're putting swords into me when you put swords into Christians. Wow. It's always a little surprising when you read it for the very first time. You know, for some of us, that might have been a multitude of decades ago. I don't know. Colossians 1.24. Paul reflects on the nature of his sufferings. my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Okay, thank you Frank. So we have two eras, as it were, of Christ's afflictions, right? We have the era that ends with <coughs> that goes from 0000, zero, zero, zero A.D. do to you like that? Or back to the future? Right? Let's go back to the birth of Christ! 0000, zero, zero A.D. <laughs> Right. When does the first era of Christ's affliction end? His burial. He suffered no more when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was done. His spirit went right to the Father. The physical afflictions of Jesus ended when he died and they put his body in a tomb. There is Paul's alluding to a new era of Christ's afflictions. These, All these afflictions were redemptive, salvific. They were all part of Jesus saving a people for himself. That ended at the cross. There's no more redemptive suffering of Jesus past that. He's reigning as king. But where does Jesus suffer on this earth? In the afflictions of his people. Isn't that what Paul is saying? Uh, He um, He's saying, uh, I, am, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. So as the church suffers, who's suffering? Jesus. And apparently there's a certain amount of suffering that the church is going to suffer between, between the first coming of Jesus and the second. There's a finite amount. Paul said, <coughs> I'm on a track here. I am filling up my share in those sufferings. Christ is suffering with Paul. Christ is suffering with you when you're persecuted. It's not redemptive suffering. It's not salvific. But it is real. That's what he's saying. How about 2 Corinthians 4, 10-11? Always carry and the body the death of Jesus so that the life Thank you, Shirley. Somebody translate for us. Good. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I live that life by faith. And that is a life of continually mortifying the flesh, So, this is a kind of work of the cross in me, hopefully in you daily. Daily, Paul says, end of 2 Corinthians, I die daily. I'm putting to death anything that stands in the way of my enjoyment of God. And by virtue of being belonging to Jesus, I'm an aroma of the glory of God in Jesus Christ that the world happens to hate. It wants to crucify it, it wants to put us. To death. There's no other way to account for persecution of Christians unless they're idiots and bring it on themselves. And Paul says, well, know Peter says, don't do that. If you suffer for being a jerk, don't rejoice in that. You need to suffer for being righteous. We can say more about that. Galatians 6 17. Again, Jesus' solidarity with our flesh. Paul writes, What was he referring to, Bearing in his body? And he lost his marks. He was whipped yeah. numerous times. He was stoned numerous times. You don't think he had bruises that lasted maybe a year from being stoned? And he was whipped? What does he call those? The marks of Jesus. Marks of Jesus. How can that be? Because Jesus so identifies with his flesh that they're his, his marks. They're not redemptive. They're not salvific, But they are real. Stunning, isn't it? All right, we're going to move on to maybe happier territory here. But does anybody want to say anything about the, the, the uh, waters we've just traveled through? Mm-hmm. Joe? It's fair to say that you know, you're saying are not redemptive. Yeah. Right. But they're part of God's productive work in the church, right? In the sense that you know, this phrase, what is it lacking flexi-what's like, you know, lacking in his reflections that it sounds like, oh, there's something lacking in what Jesus has done. Right, so you're saying in that legal sense there's not. God is still in his province working redemption of the church. I mean, people might be converted, seeing Paul's scholars Yes. Saying, this is a right. So, so, yes. so I, guess I, I guess I'm trying to, I guess I'm trying to uh, understand and, and elevate the significance of the suffering that the church does, even for the ultimate good of the church. Yes, well said. So, Italy, yes, it's, it's not atoning suffering. It can have the fruit of people being redeemed. Yes, I agree. And history would bear that out. Huang, was that a hand going up? It's, it's, I think the point of that is so that people would elevate humans. There are other places they will um, replace to Paul, but the ultimate is Jesus and not Paul. So if you, we're not being clear <coughs> Uh, Pat, and then Radu. Right okay, then. Well, just, I just want to see that. So when the Holy Spirit is given to us, so that glorified life, Yes. And yes, absolutely. And I'm actually echoing back to what, what Joe was saying. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that Jesus left a pattern for you to follow. That you should what? Follow the steps. What was the pattern? Suffering unjustly. So in a sense, we all have a pattern, a flight pattern. I have a friend who's a pilot and when you landed DFW, you ever landed at DFW you start your descent way south, basically over the ballpark of Arlington. The planes come in to make a hard turn, come down to land if you can land uh, south to north. There's an invisible gate out there. There's a pattern that, you know, the pilot's on, and he comes down and lands. The, the same is true for us in our lives. There's a pattern of suffering, and there's a certain amount of suffering we're going to suffer, and that's going to be filled up by the time we die, right? Well, that's, I'm just thinking about that. So did you want to say something right do, And then I'll come to our student over here. who's. <coughs> marks are not atoning, right? Um, got me to thinking, you know, there's some world, religions where people would log themselves, you know, put on marks on themselves and thinking that they were somehow <coughs> for their or maybe somehow that distinction is made in that statement. For, I just, you know, that's all my mind. Okay. He has those marks because he is atoned. You belong to Jesus, you will suffer. That suffering is afflicting Jesus because he identifies with your flesh, even as you've been identified with his. And I forgot your name, I'm so sorry. One of our students. What? Rachel? Um, I just sort of like Paul tends to be like, sarcastic a bit, like referring to like another passage he talks about, like, if you should, like get a sense based on words, I'm the one, like, I was a Pharisee, I was top two, to that. and so I just sort of invested in that, like, in my question, I'm feeling like lacking Christ emotionally, like, more like a bit of sarcastic tone, sarcastic, so not to say, oh, I really am, like, making a fool of Christ in a new world, so like, oh, like I'm being like Christ. So just that's Okay. Thank you. Well, we are at the end of the hour. Um, we'll, we'll pick up next time with solidarity and judgment. But who, who knew how important your flesh was to Jesus and his flesh was to you? So it is a reason why our marriages need to reflect the love of Christ for the church. Any other comments or thoughts? Again, bear with me, I'm painstakingly putting down layers and layers and layers. But you can see where this is going in terms of making unwarranted distinctions between uh, people that you don't like the way they live or look or act. Yes? I just wanted to add one thing to it. I just had a thought that perhaps this is why it's so important that we attend to the needs of others, like with food and raiment. Studying the book of James in the latest Bible study, and it's just coming up how you know you, you need, to, you need to help the poor, you need to help the widow and the orphan. That's come up numerous times. So that's attending to the fleshly needs, the bodily needs, and the people too. that. Yes. So this is actually it's Mary, right? Oh, Joan Cathy. Joan Cathy, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so this is where we began the class with Matthew 25. If you fed the poor, you fed Jesus. If you clothed the naked, you clothed Jesus. He said, "As much as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me." And we're just we're just elaborating on that very idea that fleshly things done for fleshly people is done to Jesus. That's how closely he identifies. And if you didn't do it to them, you didn't do it to Jesus. It's the ultimate basis for the final judgment. These things. Let's pray. Again, Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters. I praise you for their appetite for the word of God. I praise you for their insights. I pray for the privilege of hearing from each one and just the the collective work of your spirit in them, teaching them, growing them, giving them insight and love for your word. Now send us to this one assembly over which, Jesus, we believe you reign and you desire to be hailed and glorified and magnified as Savior and Lord. And give our hearts fullness of the Spirit to engage with you, to bring you the glory and honor that you deserve, and to hear from you that which would transform us more and more into your likeness. Fill us with conviction, with joy, with obedience, with trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.